0: Welcome to episode number 74 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. We are a church, a reformed church, a reformed and evangelical church that has been planted in Centralia, Washington. Right now we're meeting at the Ford's Prairie Grange at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and we would love to have you join us. The following audio comes from our Lord's Day service that took place on Sunday, November 21st. And in this audio, we get to hear the covenant renewal worship that took place, as well as the sermon by Tyler Hatcher of Trinity Church. Trinity Church is our sponsoring church. They're the ones that planted us back in May of 2021, and Tyler is the associate pastor there. Tyler has been preaching through the book of Ephesians, and in today's sermon, he gets to the end of chapter three. It's a glorious message of the fullness of God in his people, in the people of Christ. And so I encourage you to listen to the whole thing and be blessed by it. We would love to have you join us for Lord's Day worship and any of the other many things that we are doing as a church together. If you'd like to find out what's going on and when it's happening, go to lewiscounty.church. That's lewiscounty.church. Enjoy the sermon. Well, our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. As I looked, thrones were placed Father, we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to the overwhelming glory of your presence. We are a part of the 10,000 times 10,000 who are coming before you this glorious morning. Open our eyes, our ears, and soften our hearts to the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus. amen. Amen. Proverbs 18, verse 17 tells us, The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. In this proverb, Solomon tells us that we must withhold judgment in disputes and controversies until all the facts have been examined. The first story always seems plausible, and it's human tendency, human nature, to be naturally trusting, and therefore, our tendency is to just go with the first thing we hear, but scripture tells us that this is an illusion. The first to state his case only seems right. People lie, cheat, misrepresent, and deceive all the time. And there's no reason that they shouldn't do so with you. This is why Jesus tells us, his people, to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Since we are living in a time of near constant government, news, and media propaganda, we must apply this wise counsel accordingly. You should never, you should never assume your local, regional, or national news is telling you the truth. Nearly everything you read, watch, or listen to has been propagandized in some way to achieve an end goal. Even the weather report is propaganda in its own way. Examine the facts as a wise and crafty serpent would, and ask yourself, What am I being told to believe? And how does this story line up with what I know about the incarnate truth? But it can even be trickier than this. While we can easily be deceived by others and their rush to be the first to state their case, there is no one who can deceive us better than ourselves. Self-deception is nearly impossible to spot and absolutely impossible to defeat without the scalpel of the Holy Spirit. Kids, kids, you listening? Have you ever angrily confronted a sibling because you thought he or she took something or broke something or did something to you or did something to something of yours, only to find out that you had in your own mind been the first to state your case, and it seemed right to you, but it was in fact wrong? Adults, have you ever done anything similar but directed at your spouse, at your children, or maybe a coworker? Believed the case you made in your own mind to be right without examining it. Whether through self-deception or through willful gullibility, we are all guilty of failing to withhold judgment before all the facts are present. And as a result of this sin, we believe and we perpetuate lies. As Solomon said, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So because we belong to Jesus... This reminds us of our need to confess our sin. So if you're able, will you please kneel with me? Scripture says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. People of God, you have humbled yourself in faith. Now hear and believe the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. morning.
1: It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Thanks for having us down once again. Our uh, sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 14 through 21. These are the words of God. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can now come to your word, that we can open it, that we can hear your word preached. With Paul, we bow our knees before you. Would you open our hearts to receive your word? Would you open our ears to hear it? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I should tell you at the outset, if my voice sounds a little odd, I was at the uh, state soccer finals last night with our high school team. They didn't win, but you would think that they would have by the way that I sound. It was a lot of fun, but it's really wonderful to be with you all this morning. We uh, look forward to the opportunities we have to come down and worship with you all. Our kids are excited about it. My wife loves coming down and seeing you all. It is really a joy to see the work that God is doing here in all of you. In the book of Ephesians, as we have been slowly making our way through it, Paul teaches that Christians have been raised to new life in Christ. This is a theme that runs through the book of Ephesians, that they've been raised to new life, and that this has happened not by anything good in them. This is not because God looks at us and sees, these are the right kinds of people that I want. It's not anything in us, that merits God's favor, nor is there any, any work that we have done or any decision that we have made that causes us to be raised to new life, but purely it is the grace of God. And Paul is emphatic in this in the first three chapters, and he is overwhelmed by the grace of God that he would choose us, that he would choose people like you and like me and like Paul himself, that he would choose people like the Ephesians. Having raised us from the dead, from the death, from, from being dead in our sins, God then sets before us works that he calls us to walk in. And these are works that he has planned out for us. This, we see this all in the first 10 verses or so of Ephesians chapter 2. God has raised us to new life, but that new life is not then something that we simply... Uh, remain in, in one sense. We remain in it in the sense that we, um, we, we uh, rest in it and we trust in Christ in it, but it's not something that we stay stagnant in. It is something rather that um, this new life in us, in us causes us to walk down certain paths that God sets before us, to walk down and do the things that he has set before us to do, things that he has crafted and designed for you. And With all of this, the Ephesians need to learn and grow in living like followers of Christ. They've been raised to new life and they need to grow in what that means and and grow in living out this faith, living out this life that has been given to them. And this is all because they have been brought near to the Father through the Son. And that's what Paul emphasizes in the end of chapter 2. And so this um, growing in living like followers of Christ, growing in learning to do the things that God has called us to do, is going to be the focus of the latter half of this letter to the Ephesians, in chapters 4 through 6. Paul is going to give many instructions, many things for the people of God to do, commands, exhortations. But before he does this, before he moves into these exhortations, he is once again going to stop And pray for the Ephesians. That's the passage that we just read. And he prays for them that they would be overwhelmed by the grace and love of Christ. And it is fascinating as we stop and consider this. And this is probably the main thing to take away from the sermon this morning. Before you go and do anything. Before you go and do anything that God has called you to do. Before you go and live like a Christian. You must first know the love of Christ. There is something to be known. There is something to be believed before you can go and do. And so this is what Paul prays for the Ephesians before he then exhorts them in what to do. So if you look, if you have your Bibles open, look with me at verse 14. Paul here says, for this reason. And he here is going to. Uh, continue on doing what he had begun to do in chapter 3, verse 1. So if you look earlier in chapter 3, you see that Paul also there says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And so in that sentence, Paul is the subject, and there is no verb to the sentence. Paul gets cut off, and he gets cut off because he's distracted again by the grace of God. And so verses 2 through 13 really are other, um, um, Paul expanding and expounding on this grace of God, what God has done, the mystery that has been revealed in God's grace being extended to the Gentiles. And so now in verse 14, Paul's coming back to what he was going to do. So verse one, he says, for this reason, then he gets distracted. Now verse 14, he comes back to that. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the grace of God, In raising dead men to life in Christ. As you see in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And because in doing so he has brought near those who are far off. Verses 11 through 18. In short because they are being built into the spiritual temple. Where God intends to dwell. Verses 19 through 22. Because of all of this. For this reason. Paul humbles himself before the father. As he begins to pray for the Ephesians. Though in Christ. We have boldness and confident access to the Father. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 12. We have boldness and access with confidence to the Father through faith in Christ. And yet, even even though he has this, even though we have this boldness, this access to the Father, it is striking that Paul still bows before him just simply in order to pray to him. He humbles himself as he prays for these Christians. And Paul here in... The next verse in verse 15 gives an important epithet to the Father. He says, I'm praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom, that is from the Father, by whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It is from God that all the family of heaven and earth is named. It is from God that all fatherhood derives. You may have a note, most of our trans- English translations um, translate this as from whom the whole family or all the family. And you may have a footnote that says um, this could also be translated as fatherhood. And that's, the, the word is very related to the word for father, and so that's why that note is there. And I think uh, there's debates as to wh- which way to translate it and what the implications of it are, but I think we can take both of them. I think both are implied in what Paul is saying here. The whole family on heaven and earth is named. Who is God's family? All those who are in Christ, all those who follow him, those who are on earth, living the saints living on earth, and those who are in heaven, those who are with the Father or with Christ in heaven and are still worshiping him. The whole family on heaven and earth is named, and it's from him that all fatherhood derives, from whom all fatherhood comes. Our fathers, our earthly fathers, get their fatherliness from God. And when our fathers are good fathers, they point us and direct us to God. And when our fathers are poor fathers, they show us what God is not. But we don't learn about the fatherhood of God by primarily looking at our fathers. It's the other way around. We understand what fathers should be by looking at God the Father. And so the fact that we call God Father, we should learn from this that God is Father, and because of that, our fathers Uh, learn in how they are to walk and who they are to imitate rather than seeing oh because our fathers are good or our fathers are bad that's what God the father himself is like and I think sometimes we get that backwards we tend to think that God the father we, we sometimes cringe at that term that he is father because we've had fathers who were not good fathers but that's not how we are to understand God he is the good father and our fathers when they fall short they are, they are lying to us. Fathers, when you fall short, you are lying to your children about who God is. But it's from him that all fatherhood comes. And this is important in this passage because Paul is going to pray for particular blessings upon these people, upon these Christians. And all of the blessings that he is going to ask the Father to give the Ephesians stem from God's fatherhood. and then they are extended to the members of his family, those who bear his name. If you've been baptized into Christ, you bear the name of Christ, and you bear the name then of the Father and of his family. And so all of these blessings, Paul is asking for these blessings to be given to those who are in the family of God, who are under the fatherhood of Jehovah God. And the gifts of strength for, fellowship in, and knowledge of the unfathomable love of Christ are the gifts of the good Father who fills his family with himself. If we sum up this passage, if you sort of scan through verses 14 through 19, this is what this passage is about. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would be strengthened for, that they would have fellowship in, and that they would have knowledge of the depths and the height and the width and the breadth the unknowable love, the unfathomable love of Christ. And these come from the good Father who fills his family, not just with things external to him, but fills his family with himself. And so Paul prays that the Father would grant two things in particular. And so first, these two things are that he would, that God would strengthen the Ephesians with power through the Spirit. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that God would not stop the work that He has begun in them, but rather that Christ would continue to dwell in them. And so first, these are the two things that Paul asks for initially. First, that he would strengthen the Ephesians with power through the Spirit in the inner man. Remember, at the beginning of Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul has identified the Holy Spirit as the seal upon the hearts of believers. Look back at verse one, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, In Christ you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In Christ also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. And this Spirit that you have been sealed with as a Christian, that you have been given, is a spirit that now God, uh, Paul is asking God to strengthen you for a particular purpose. He prays that you would be strengthened with might for power through his spirit. And what is, this, what is Paul asking that you would be strengthened for? Ultimately, I think it has to do, again, with the reason that Paul is giving this prayer. Christians, he says to the Ephesians, you are being built up into the temple of God. The end of chapter 2. Christians are, to be, are being built into the dwelling place of God, and this God is infinite. He's eternal. He's most holy. And how is it that a temple made of finite men, finite men and women, even redeemed men and women, how is it that the finite can contain the infinite. How is it that you, as the people of God, redeemed though you are, how is it that the church of God can be the dwelling place of the infinite God? How can we contain the infinite overwhelming grace and glory and love of God? I think Paul indicates here that we must be strengthened and seasoned for it. You can't contain it. You can't be a fit vessel for the grace of God apart from the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And I think here it's interesting that Paul does not specifically pray for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened in order to be able to endure persecution or that they would be strengthened in order to fight against temptation. Although we would find lots of places in Scripture where that is true. We do need to be strengthened for these things, but I don't think that's what Paul primarily has in mind here. He needs he wants Christians to be strengthened so that they would be able to handle the love of Christ. Have you thought of that? As a finite fallen, fallen yet redeemed individual, can you handle the love of Christ? It's perfect. It's unconditional. It knows no bounds. Can you fathom that? We need the Holy Spirit, I think, in order to really grasp this. This kind of strength, the strength to really handle, to comprehend, to understand, to know the love of Christ is not something that comes from us. The strength to know this comes from the Holy Spirit. And these spiritual blessings and strengthening that Paul prays for are necessary then to walk the path that God has set before Christians. You can't go and do what Christ calls you to do if you don't know Christ. You can't go and walk the path that He has set before you if you don't know His love for you. And when we try to do these things, when we try to work out our salvation... Apart from the love of Christ, apart from resting in the love of Christ, it quickly becomes self-serving. It becomes uh, trying to attain to righteousness on our own merits. Even as Christians, we fall into this. I just need to do the right things. I just need to get my act together. And if you try to do those things, apart from first resting in the love of Christ, his love for you, you'll fall short. Again and again and again. Again. What are those temptations that you cannot shake? What are those things that you cannot stop doing? Do you know Christ's love for you? Because if you don't know Christ's love for you, if you're not resting in that first, nothing you do will matter. Nothing you do will break that habit. We can only reckon ourselves to be dead to sin by first reckoning ourselves to be alive in Christ and under his love. So this is the first thing that Paul prays for the Ephesians, that God would give them this kind of strength, spiritual strength, spirit filled strength to know the love of Christ. And then secondly, he prays that God would not stop the work that he has begun in them. God has chosen them from the beginning, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He's chosen them from the beginning. Apart from anything in them, he's raised them to new life. And even so, Paul prays that Christ would dwell in them. Does Christ dwell in them? They're saved, aren't they? Yes, of course Christ dwells in them. But it's fascinating that Paul prays that Christ would continue to dwell in them. Christ had promised to always be with his people, right? When when Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples this. Tells them to go into all the world and teach all the nations what Christ has commanded them. And then he reminds them, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because Christ promised this, then Christians pray that he would remain in them. Isn't that fascinating? Christ promised, I'm going to remain with you always. Always. And Paul teaches us here, so you should pray that he does. Why? Christians should pray that he would remain in them as God continues to fashion them into his own dwelling. You are being built up into the temple of the Holy Spirit. God does dwell with you. And so you pray that God would dwell with you. And so note here that Paul is, this is not an evangelistic prayer that Paul has here. It's not an evangelistic prayer in the sense that he's praying for unbelievers. No, he's praying for believers. He's praying that Christ would dwell in believers' hearts. This is a prayer that God would, this is a prayer that Paul is giving so that God would give these things to believers, give to those who are already his, those who already believe in him would receive these things. Calvin says of this passage, it is the gift of the grace of God, not only that we have begun to run well, but that we advance. Not only that we have been born again, but that we grow from day to day. Your salvation, on the one hand, is a one-time thing. You've been justified. You've been raised to new life. But God doesn't stop there. He continues to sanctify you. He continues to grow you by the power of the Holy Spirit. He continues to advance you in the race that he has set before you. Believers need the Father to grant them strength by the Spirit. Believers do. Believers have been given the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you believe in Jesus Christ. Because only uh, only somebody who has the Spirit can believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Only those who have the Spirit can name Jesus Christ as Lord. And so if you follow Jesus Christ as your Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. And Christians need to continue to have the Holy Spirit. You need to pray that God would strengthen you by the Holy Spirit. Believers need the Father to grant Christ to continue to dwell in their hearts. We pray for those that are not saved. We pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that God would raise them from the dead. But we also pray for one another that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Why? We pray this in part because the temptation is to just have Christ in your mind, to just have Christ on your tongue or just on your shelf or on your nightstand. But Christ needs to dwell in your heart. Does Christ dwell in your heart? Believers need this renewal daily. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, let me read this for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart in the midst of all the persecutions and, and trials that Paul and the apostles go through. And then he says that, he, that Christians should expect to go through. We do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day, you need Christ to rule in your heart. Day by day, you need the Spirit to strengthen you. Believers need this renewal daily, and believers are to pray to God to keep His promises. I find it so fascinating that God gives us all of these promises in His Word and the one that we're talking about right now is Jesus' promise that he would be with his people always. God has given this promise and God is true to his word and yet one of the ways in which he fulfills his word, one of the means by which he keeps his promise is by telling you to pray that he would keep his promise. God says, Jesus says, I will be with you always. And Paul says, pray that Christ dwells with you. Is Paul asking you to pray that because he doubts God's word? Is he asking you to pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts because he doubts Jesus will keep his promise? No. But he does tell you to pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts because that is one of the means by which Christ does dwell in your hearts. It's the means by which he keeps his promise to you. God uses the prayers of his people as the means of keeping his promises. So these are the two things initially that Paul prays for these people. That they would be strengthened with might, with power, by the Holy Spirit. And that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. These are things that Paul has asked God to do. And now he turns in his prayer, praying specifically Something that the Ephesians would do. So he's asking God, would you do this in them? And then he says, and to the Ephesians, I pray that they would do this. That they, being rooted and grounded in love, would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. Paul prays that they would know the immeasurable love of Christ. Look at verse 17 and 18, end of 17 and into 18 that you being rooted and grounded in love, that two wonderful analogies there of of the way that plants grow or a tree grows being rooted, solid, solidly tied to the ground, immovable, or like a building with a solid foundation, grounded. What are we rooted and grounded in? What's the thing that we rest upon? It's love. God's love for us. We're rooted in, And grounded on God's love. And and being rooted and grounded in this, Paul prays that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes understanding. Can you comprehend that? A more wooden translation of the verbs in verse 18. So in, in the New King James here it says, Uh, That you might be able to comprehend. Uh, Another way to translate this would be that you may be strong enough to grasp. That you may be strong enough to grasp with all the saints the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. Again, the Father must give this strength. Strength. This is why Paul prays that the Father would give them strength by the Spirit. Why? Because they need to be strong enough to grasp Christ's love. To comprehend what is incomprehensible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that spiritual things can only be spiritually discerned. We can't understand the love of Christ if we do not have the Spirit of Christ. We need the Spirit of God to comprehend The love of God. Getting your mind around the love of Christ is like wrapping your hand around a big chunk of ice. Only to find out that it's actually a huge iceberg. And the iceberg is infinite. It's like reading the first chapter in volume one in an immense library. And the library is infinite. Your understanding of the love of Christ is like that. It's like one grain of sand on the seashore. And that one grain of sand is enough to fill you. You could be filled with all of the sand on the seashore, all the sand that you could see, and still you haven't plumbed the depths of the love of Christ. The height is immeasurable. immeasurable. The depth is immeasurable. The width and the length are immeasurable. You can't reach the ends of Of Christ's love. And remember, as um, in the beginning of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, I think Paul teaches us that you are the inheritance that Christ died for. You are the inheritance that Christ went to the cross for. And so when he's on the cross, as it says in Hebrews, looking ahead to the joy that was set before him, what is that joy that was set before Christ? When he's on the cross, What is he looking at that sustains him through that trial? It's looking at his church. It's looking at you. Christ's love for you is such that when he was on the cross, he looked ahead to you. You. With all of your shortcomings, with all of your failings... With all of your misunderstandings. With all of the way that you don't understand the love of Christ. With all of the ways that you don't understand how to love one another. With all of your sins. Christ looked ahead and he saw you. And that's why he died. That's why he went to the grave. Because he saw all of you. And he said, these are mine. This is my inheritance. And it was that joy set before him for which he endured the shame of the cross. Do you know the love of Christ? You can't know it. You can't plumb its depths. You can't grasp it. But try. Try by the power of the Spirit, know the love of Christ. Since we are being built up together, all peoples together, this is one of the emph- another emphasis in the book of Ephesians, Jew and Gentile have been brought together. The dividing wall, the separation between Jew and Gentile has been dissolved. And because of that, those who are far off have been brought near. And because of this, all together being built up, our comprehension of the expanse of Christ's love comes also together with all the saints. Your understanding of Christ's love is not just individual, but it's also corporate. Our knowledge of Christ is not just individual, but also corporate. And this is because Christ loves those who are His, not just individually, although certainly that, but also corporately. He loves you individually, each of you in here that believe on the name of Jesus Christ. He loves you, but He also loves this church, this local body. And He also loves the church, the church globally and historically and to the end of the ages. These are those that Christ loves. And so this is why the communion of the saints is something that we confess together in the Apostles' Creed and in other creeds. We confess, we, we say together that we believe in the communion of saints. What does that mean? It's a core part of our faith and frankly, and and. and uh, Basically, what it means is we believe that saints, the people of God, are tied together. They have union together, and that union is the bonds of love. Where does that come from? It comes from the love that Christ has for us. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit that each of you have. And if each of you have it and you love Christ, then you love those that Christ loves. We love Christ because he loved us first. We love Christ because he loves us and then we love others because Christ also loves them. And so this is very important to understand as we go, as we will go into the next half of the book of Ephesians. In the second half, Paul is going to give many commands and exhortations. We've noted before that in the first uh, three chapters of Ephesians, Paul basically gives no imperatives No commands as to what Christians are to do, only things that Christians are to believe. In fact, the only command that is given to them is a command to remember, to believe and remember what God has done. But in the second half of Ephesians, it's chock full of commands, things to do, things Christians ought to be doing, the way that Christians should live. And we know that all of God's commands, from what Jesus teaches us and and from what Paul says in Romans 13, that all of God's commands are summed up in loving Him. All of God's commands are summed up in loving Him and in loving one another. The first and second great commandments. So everything that, that Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 can be summed up by saying, love God and love your neighbor. Now how in the world are we going to be able to do these things? Be honest. How can you love God with everything that you are and everything that you have? You can't. How can you truly love your neighbor as yourself? With no thought of yourself, with no regard for how you are going to receive from it, for no regard of how it's going to make your situation better, can you purely love your neighbor as yourself? This is what you are commanded to do. This is what you are called to do. And when you're honest, you know you can't. How can we love Him with everything we are and have? How can we love our neighbors as ourselves? Can we love with the love that Christ loves with? Can you truly love that way? In and of ourselves, we can't. We can, though. We only can, and we only will, if we first know the unfathomable love of Christ for you. If you understand the unconditional love that Christ has for you, the unconditional grace that God pours out upon you, when you understand that, it erases envy, it erases covetousness, it erases bitterness, it erases the need to be better than others. It erases the need to needle your wife and prick your husband. It erases the need to snap at your children. It erases the need to be in control. When we understand the love of Christ for us, which you can't understand apart from the power of the Spirit, but when you begin to grasp this, it is then that we can love those that God calls us to love. And so Paul sums up all of this, all of his prayer in verse 19, that they would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, and ultimately, finally, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And there's another thing, it's sort of a side note, but it's amazing to see here. Earlier, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says that you, the church, are the fullness of Christ. You are the fullness of Christ. He doesn't pray that you would be filled with the fullness of Christ. He says that you are the fullness of Christ. You're the fullness of Christ, and now Paul is praying that God would fill you with himself. So you're the fullness of Christ, and God is to fill you with himself. How does this work? And I think one of the things that we see here is a glimpse, a small glimpse into the triune nature of God. A small glimpse into what um, the theological term used to describe this is perichoresis. It means that the Father and the Son and the Spirit mutually dwell in with one another. They are separate persons, but in some way they dwell in and with one another. And I think we get a glimpse of that here. You are the fullness of Christ and... The prayer that Paul gives is that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so, if you are to be filled with the fullness of God, understanding, growing, and understanding the love of Christ, this helps us to really see that everything that God has for you, everything that He can give you, it does not stem from living right. It does not come from choosing to do the right things or being with the right people or attending the right church or going to the right clubs, being a part of the right groups. It doesn't depend on doing your Bible reading. It doesn't depend on having flowing prayers. It doesn't depend on being, having your home in order. It doesn't depend on the way that you speak to your wife or your husband. It doesn't depend on those relationships it foundationally depends on and comes from knowing and believing the love of Christ. If it's not rooted and grounded in that love, then everything that you do falls short. Everything that you strive for is vanity, it's empty. But if it is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Then Paul's prayer is that you'll be filled with the fullness of God. Do you want everything that God has for you? Do you want everything he can possibly give to you? The way that comes is from knowing the love of Christ. And of course it flows out into the way that we live and it flows out in the things that we do and it flows out into the way that we treat one another. But those are secondary things that come out of the love of Christ. And so Paul concludes his prayer and concludes this first half of the letter to the Ephesians with the doxology, verses 20 and 21. Paul gives God the glory Because he is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think. And Paul's language here is hyperbolic. And I think his hyperbole just scratches the surface of the Father's care for his people. Look at this with me for a moment. This is something that that you all need to do. And you all need to rest in. And you all need to turn to at different times through your week or through, your, through seasons of your life, when you are overwhelmed with whatever it is and, you're, and you're, you're struggling with resting in that love of Christ, you're struggling with being rooted and grounded in that love, you don't feel grounded on it, turn to this passage. Read through verses 14 through 19, but end with this. <clears throat> verses 20, or verse 20. This is Paul's doxology. Now to him who is able to do whatever we ask. He's giving God the glory for whatever we what to do whatever we ask. Well, not only to what God is able to do, but God is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask. Not only is he able to do exceedingly above all that we ask, exceedingly abundantly above. Can you get more exceedingly abundantly than that? Paul runs out of adverbs. It's exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask. But he's not done. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Just try it. Try to out-ask the grace of God. Try to out-ask the love of Christ. I dare you. You can't plumb those depths. You can't reach those heights. You can't see that far. That is the grace of God, the love of Christ for you. And it is only because of this that we can then walk in the things that God calls us to walk in. There are lots of practical applications throughout the book of Ephesians. There are lots of really practical things to do. But this is the most practical. And it's not a command for something that you need to go and do, it's simply something to believe. Paul attributes all of the glory to God. His glory is manifested in the church because he raises dead souls to everlasting life. He brings near those who are far off and he bestows on them every spiritual blessing. And while we are, as the church, receive these blessings and we benefit from these blessings, all of the glory redounds back to the Father. If the Father chose you from the beginning... And Paul says that he did. Then you can trust him to fill you with everything that you need to walk in his ways. That is, he will fill you with himself. He does not do this because you have earned it or because you follow him well. He does, not, he does this simply because he has chosen you and because he is well pleased with his children. You can only walk in God's ways if you are rooted and grounded in His love, if He fills you with His Spirit so that you know the love of Christ. And all glory to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come now to our time of communion. At the Lord's table, one of the things that we are celebrating and participating in is the communion of the saints. And we often call this time, this right communion, and the word simply means union with. We here are celebrating and participating in, remembering and renewing our union with Christ. And the reason we are united with Christ is because of his love for us. And Paul tells us in Romans that nothing can separate us from that love. But we also celebrate and participate in our union with fellow believers. And this is part of why the rite of communion is not something that should be done off by yourself or in your own individual homes. It should be done in the gathering of the saints in worship. 1 Corinthians 10.17 says, That we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We participate in the body of Christ and in the Lord's Supper... And doing so together is part of what God uses to knit us together. We all partake of Christ, and so we are one loaf and one body. This then changes our relationships and our views of one another. Fundamentally, Christians love one another, but we don't love one another in order to become one body. We love one another because we are one in the love of Christ. And so to all who have been baptized into Christ. So the charge to you this week is similar to charges I've given you as we've been going through Ephesians in other weeks. Believe what God has done for you. Turn to Christ. Trust in his love. And start with that before you try and go and do anything that God sets before you to do. Hear the benediction from your Lord.